Hello, I'm your host, Erin Gruel, and welcome to the Freedom Writers Podcast. Today's show is episode number 28, featuring my conversation with Jack Horner, a world-famous paleontologist and renowned voice on dyslexia. As someone with dyslexia himself, Jack helps us understand how the dyslexic brain works and what teachers can do to encourage their dyslexic students. I hope Jack's journey of discovery leaves you feeling enlightened and empowered to make a difference. The Freedomers and I have met countless students and teachers who are combating the harmful misinformation that surrounds learning disabilities, or as we prefer to say, learning differences. Our guest today, Jack Horner, is known for his ability to think outside the box. In fact, he credits that very ability as the primary reason for his great success. In our insightful discussion, Jack takes us step-by-step through his journey, from his earliest dinosaur digs to the highest halls of academia. I'm honored to share this conversation with you, revealing how our guest has overcome adversity and found success despite those challenges. When I arrived on Chapman University's beautiful campus in Orange, California, I couldn't help but notice the ground beneath my feet. The dirt, the rocks, the foliage. The man I was about to interview has spent his life digging and searching for ancient remnants of the past, and I couldn't wait to dig a little deeper. Some of you may know that Jack Horner was the inspiration for the character of Alan Grant in Michael Crichton's best-selling book, Jurassic Park. He was even asked to be the technical advisor on the blockbuster film adaptations directed by Steven Spielberg, who also happens to be dyslexic. Jack Horner is a paleontologist, a professor, and most impressively, he is an advocate. Jack is dyslexic and has used his position as a presidential fellow at Chapman University to teach others about dyslexia. His goal is to create a more accepting and accessible campus for students with learning differences. Without further ado, Here's my conversation with Jack Horner. I am at Chatwin University with the esteemed professor Jack Horner, who is a renowned paleontologist, a prolific author, and was Michael Crichton's basis for the Alan Grant character in Jurassic Park. He is also severely dyslexic. And so today, Jack lectures on evolution, dinosaurs, and dyslexia. I'd like to welcome our famous paleontologist, Jack Horner. Bye. Jack, I want to start at the beginning. You're this rambunctious kid in Montana. What was it like growing up with the world at your feet? Well, I grew up in Shelby, Montana, which is on the northern border of Montana with Canada, with Alberta. It was a little town, didn't have much going for it. I did really poorly in school, so I didn't... I didn't like going to school, and when I did go to school, I didn't do well. So growing up there, my days were really spent outside, wandering around in the hills. I was a very curious kid. Spent a lot of time just going around picking up stuff. I love stuff on the ground. Rocks, dead animals, bones. I feel like I was born this way, liking fossils, because as far back as I can remember, when I was four years old, I was in the backyard collecting things. 
I found my first fossils when I was four. I found my first dinosaur bone when I was eight. I found my first dinosaur skeleton when I was 13. And I found a whole bunch of dinosaurs when I was in high school. What got me into dinosaurs, I'm not sure, but I do remember that when I was really young, back in the early 1950s, there were toy dinosaurs in the cornflakes box, and I liked those, and I got to play with those out in the backyard, so that might have helped spur on the dinosaur thing, but as far as I can tell, I was born this way. So you're picking up bones. You bring them home to your basement. What does your mom think of these bones that are now in your basement? My mother never had any problem until it was, you know, pretty full. And then she told me that I was going to have to get a museum to put them in. There were every kind of bone. Every individual bone that I found, every carcass on the highway from something getting hit, I drug it all home. And rocks and, and fossils and, you know, just, I had a really good collection of a whole lot of junk. You know, I my mother would take me to the library so I could identify things. I didn't do very well in school, and the teachers were always saying that I could do better, and oftentimes suggesting I was lazy. But at home, I would go to the library, and I didn't read anything, but I would go look at the books and look at the pictures. And so by the time I was in the third grade, I, I could pretty well identify most bones, at least I knew the skeletal names of them, and by the time I was in the fifth or sixth grade, I could identify the animal. I want to go back to those early classrooms, Jack, where teachers may have taken out their rulers or their red pens. Can you take our audience through what it was like to be a curious kid with teachers who didn't tap your potential? The whole town had, like, 4,000 people in it, so our classes were pretty small. And even in kindergarten, as you can imagine, you know, us dyslexics, we have a hard time with letters. And I remember the blocks had letters on them, and the little P and the little Q and the little D, for me, they were all the same letter. So I would put a P or a Q or a D or a B any place. They would make a, a word, you know, like dog, D-O-G, and the D, as far as I could see, was pog or a quag or a, you know, I mean, I never saw letters as a two-dimensional image. I always saw them as a three-dimensional image, and I still do. And so, as far as I'm concerned, a D and a B are exactly the same thing. Direction has nothing to do with it. And, of course, they actually are different letters, I keep hearing, but I still think they're the same letter. Did they ever know you had this wonderful hidden talent that this little boy is in a library studying a femur? Not really. Um, there was nowhere in my schooling that, you know, that, I mean, all the kids, all my friends knew that I liked fossils and I would take them fossil hunting and I would take them out to show them cool things. But the teachers never really knew. When I was in high school, though, my high school science teacher, he was the biology teacher and the chemistry teacher, and he noted that I didn't pass any of his science classes, but that I had won all of the science fairs. I, I've read that you've won first place yes. four years in a row. Right. So let's talk about your science teacher. Here's this kid <laughs> who's winning these ribbons and awards, and 
probably not turning your homework, probably not bubbling the right answers in on a test. And was he confused? Like, how could you win the science fair and not yes. get the A in the class that you deserve? Really, all the teachers were puzzled by that. And some of the teachers said that was proof that I was lazy. No one likes to be called anything. I mean, lazy is, I knew I wasn't. You know, in my mind, I was doing pretty well. Winning a science fair, getting to go to the state science fair, and doing well in the state science fair as well. I knew I was doing fine. I just, I knew there was a problem, but I didn't know what it was. Was there part of you that just wanted to show those cynical teachers that I am good enough and I am smart enough? Not really. I, I don't think I ever felt that, you know, I was trying to get even or show anybody anything. All of my science fair projects were just fun. I mean, they were cool things and things that I enjoyed making. For my freshman year, I made a rocket that went several thousand feet in the air. And then my sophomore year, I made a Van de Graaff generator that produced 250,000 volts of electricity and I could turn light bulbs on with it. And then my third year, I made a big Tesla coil. I had gotten a Coolidge tube from the hospital when they were putting in a new x-ray machine. So I got their old x-ray tube. And so I built a Tesla coil so I could x-ray things, including myself, which probably wasn't good, but I did it anyway. And then my senior year in high school, I made my exhibit on dinosaurs, comparing the dinosaurs from Alberta, Canada with those from Montana, and asking the question why they were so different. I mean, they were impressive things, but I didn't make them to be impressive. I made them because they were just cool and I knew how to do it. So you clearly are great with your hands and you're a problem solver. Did you know that you would go off to college, or were you ever discouraged that maybe the halls of academia would not embrace you in higher education? Well, I assumed I wouldn't go to college because, you know, I, when I was in high school, I was flunking all my classes. But my senior year science project won that science fair, and I went to the science fair in our state, and it was held in Missoula, Montana, which is where the University of Montana is, and it's where the geology department was. And it's where the paleontologist in the state was. And he was so taken by it, he invited me to come to the University of Montana and major in geology. So that was how I got there. When I graduated from high school, I had Ds in all of my classes except English. And I had a D minus, minus, minus. It had three minus signs after it. And the English teacher said, this means that you flunked this class, but that I'm going to graduate you. What was that like for you to be given this great chance? When I went to college, um, well, I graduated from high school. And, and then the next fall, I went to the University of Montana and I signed up for a whole bunch of classes, including paleontology. And at the end of the first quarter, I had Fs in every one of my classes. I had flunked paleontology and all the geology classes and every other class, including English and math. So then they put me on probation, so I got to go one more quarter, and I flunked out then. So at the end of my first two quarters in college, I had a 0.06 grade average, and that came from an A in swimming, the only A that I ever got in my life. At the end of my first two quarters, then I was drafted. 
I was drafted out of college and went to Vietnam, and, and I came back from that. And I went back to college for four, five more years and flunked out every single quarter. And they just kept, I just kept getting back in school and back in school and back in school and, and, and had people write letters for me and so forth, and nobody knew what was wrong with me. And then finally, I said I'd, I thought I was educated well enough. I mean, I knew a lot of stuff, and, and I had worked in a museum uh, in Missoula, in our little geology museum, and so I knew a lot about paleontology and knew about museums, and so I was able to apply to a whole bunch of museums, and I got a job at Princeton University in their Natural History Museum as a technician. When you were finally exposed to this word dyslexia, this idea that you learn and process things differently, how old were you and what was that aha moment that this has a name? I went to Princeton University and during that first year that I was there, I saw a big uh, flyer on a bulletin board, great big letters that said, would you rather see a movie than read a book? It said, would you rather make a phone call than write a letter? And there was a whole bunch of things. And it said, if you said yes to these things, come see such and such a person at such and such an office. And it was for the students, and I wasn't a student, but I went there anyway, and, and they said, well, we'll give you a little test. And so they gave me a little test, and they said, yep, you're dyslexic. And I said, what's that mean? And they said, well, it means you probably can't read very well. And I said, yeah, I know that. Was it liberating? Not really. I knew by then, I mean, I obviously knew I couldn't read very well. And I, I mean, I knew I couldn't read at all, basically. So I got my job in 1975. It was the winter of 1976 that I learned that. And then in the summer times, I would come back to Montana and go fossil hunting and just look for something cool. And that summer, 1977, um, I found a really cool fossil and it got me to thinking about a, that, all these problems, that these problems I'd thought of when I was in high school. And one of them was, you know, something to do with dinosaur eggs and dinosaur babies and wondering where the dinosaur babies were because nobody had ever found one in the world. And so, so in 1978, I went back out looking for baby dinosaurs and found them. And so, I mean, it was a very short period between being told that I was dyslexic in 19, you know, 76, 77. And by 1979, I had published a paper in Nature, the best journal in the world. When I was teaching my students, there was always a list I would find for famous folks who had dyslexia. It was the great athlete, the great architect, the great politician. I love that you're on that list. <laughs> and so I'm hoping there's a teacher who has that kid in a corner who is either quiet like you were or the class clown so they could disrupt the class, who realizes that I've got this wonderful future ahead of me. So I want to go to 1979, and you take this talent of, of tinkering and exploring and finding. Tell our listeners, that, that kid in that corner, 
what did you find? And what, when you found it, what did that do for your life, the trajectory of your life? Well, in 1977, I had found a dinosaur egg. I found the first dinosaur egg that had been ever found in the Western Hemisphere. Actually, I found it in a place that my father had taken me years before. When I was eight years old, I had this interest in dinosaurs, and my father took me to an old ranch of his, and I found my first dinosaur bone when I was eight, just because my father knew a little bit about geology. And so I went back to that spot, you know, when I was around 30, and found this egg, but I didn't know what it was. I had no idea what it was. And I took it back to Princeton, and my boss at Princeton looked at it and had some idea, and he told me, he sent me into the collection where somebody, other people had found some stuff, eggshell fragments, and I looked at it and compared it, and it was the same, and so that's how I figured out that it was a dinosaur egg. And that sort of got me to thinking about baby dinosaurs and dinosaur eggs. And so the next year, I decided I would go out and look for more dinosaur eggs and dinosaur babies because nobody had ever found them. They, you know, they had found dinosaur adult skeletons all over the world, and no one had really found any baby dinosaurs. There was a few tiny fragments of them, and that was it. And so it was a great project for me because no one had ever written a paper about it. I didn't have to do any research. I mean, there was no reading involved. It was just a matter of just going and looking. And so I went back out in 1978 with the idea that I would go find baby dinosaurs and more dinosaur eggs. And I spent the whole summer with my friend Bob Makala. He and I wandered all over the place looking. And we went back to the place where the egg had come from, and we found more eggshell, but we didn't find any babies. But near there, just 20 miles away, we stopped in this rock shop to look at some big dinosaur skeleton this woman had found, and she wanted it identified, and we were in there, and we identified it, and then we identified some other stuff in her shop, and we were just leaving, and she said, oh, by the way, do you have any idea what these little things are? And in her hand were baby dinosaur bones. And so I said, yeah, I know what they are. I'd really like to know where they came from. And so a couple weeks later, she took us out to the site and we excavated it. And it was a nest of baby dinosaurs, nest of 15 baby dinosaurs that were like three feet long. For a dinosaur that full grown would be 30 feet long. Princeton University. Princeton's in New Jersey. It's very close to New York City. It's very close to Philadelphia. As soon as I was there, I started going to these other museums, the American Museum in New York City and Philadelphia Academy of Science in Philadelphia. And I went to Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. And I looked, I examined every single dinosaur bone in those museums. So I knew what adult dinosaurs' bones looked like. I had looked at some stuff in, from Mongolia that I was pretty sure were juvenile dinosaurs. So I had some idea what the texture of the bones should look like. And so when I saw those little bones that this woman in this rock shop had, they were the right shape for duckbill dinosaur bones. They were just really tiny and they had the texture of what I would have expected juvenile bones to look like. I'm seeing a pattern. 
that high school boy that won every single year in the science fair, you were self-taught and self-motivated. You took the initiative to go to museums and never lost that zest of, I need to know more. I've got to find more. So after you discovered dinosaur eggs and, and baby dinosaurs, what comes next? Well, the baby dinosaurs were found in 78, published in 79. And then, you know, I, I wasn't a professor. I was a technician. But after I published that first paper in Nature, Princeton University promoted me to research scientist. I never did get a college degree, and I had a D minus 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 in English in high school. But I then took it upon myself to try to get money, uh, try to get some money so I could take a field crew out to the area where I'd found the baby dinosaurs. And so I, I wrote to the Rainier Brewing Company because I drank Rainier beer, and I figured if I drank Rainier beer, they should be able to give me some money to go dinosaur hunting and so I wrote to them and they actually said that they would give me $10,000 if I would advertise their beer while I was out on the dinosaur dig and I agreed to it but Princeton University said no there's no way in this world you're going to get $10,000 for the Rainier Brewing Company well I later found out the reason was is the president of Anheuser-Busch was a Princeton alumni and so they weren't obviously going to have some other brewing company give me money. So the Princeton University gave me the $10,000, and I went back out. So in 1979, a year after the babies had been found, I found a nesting ground of dinosaurs with, with hundreds of dinosaur eggs. You know, all of these things were making headlines all over the world. And so Princeton was, again, very excited that we were finding all these cool things. And then in 1981, while I was out in the field with my crews from Princeton, people showed up from Montana State University and said, you know, we'd really appreciate it if you'd left some of this stuff behind for our museum we're building in Bozeman, Montana. And I said, no, I'm not leaving anything behind, but I would sure like to work in your museum. I'm from Montana and I would love to work in Montana. So they hired me from Princeton, and and I went to work as the curator of paleontology at Montana State University. Was that a wonderful homecoming for you, a full circle? It was for me. My mother had always said that I needed to make a museum to put all my junk in, and I didn't want it to be in New Jersey. So, How did you become an author, which I find fascinating, for the boy who didn't like to write? You know, it wasn't that I didn't like to write. I actually like to write. I just don't like to read. I've written more books than I've read. I have more than 300 publications, including nine books. But when I was at the University of Montana in Missoula, I wrote a senior thesis, at least what I called a senior thesis. I didn't graduate, so I could call it anything I wanted. But I wrote a, a paper and my advisor wrote more stuff on it than I had written on the whole paper. I mean, it was just all red. It was just a horrible Demoralizing. Thing. Well, it was. But on the other hand, you know, he showed me how to fix it. And I understood. I read what he had written, and I talked to him about it. And, and from that, I really did learn a little bit about how to write something. So in 1978, when I'd found the baby dinosaurs, I went to my boss and said, I think I've got a lot of cool stuff, cool information. I just need a little help. And so he helped me out a little bit. 
And he said, you don't really need help. The editors will actually help you because you have so much good information. So, so I submitted a paper to Nature and, and it was accepted and published. And, and then I realized that I probably could write some more. So I wrote a couple other papers. I wrote another Nature paper. I don't know. I just started writing scientific papers. Scientific papers, it turns out, are pretty easy for me to write because I'm very succinct. I don't use a lot of extra words. And then I decided that I should have a little book for kids about baby dinosaurs. And so I contacted a friend of mine who I had met while I was at Princeton, a guy named Jim Gorman. And Jim Gorman was a science editor for the New York Times. And I asked him if he would help me write a book. And he agreed to. And we wrote a little children's book called Maya, A Dinosaur Grows Up. It was very popular. And so we wrote an adult book called Digging Dinosaurs, which became a bestseller. But I had a co-author, right? So I had the science. Jim Gorman, he's a writer. So let's talk about this prolific friend of yours, Michael Crichton, (laughs) who wrote this wildly successful bestseller called Jurassic Park. And he based a character on you. So can you tell me about that for the world that loves to read and (laughs) and loves the series Jurassic Park? How did that come to be? Well, if you read Jurassic Park, you will see that Michael Crichton based his character on the book Digging Dinosaurs. Jim Gorman and I had published Digging Dinosaurs in 1988. And two years later, Michael Crichton published Jurassic Park. And so he took his Alan Grant character as this guy who finds baby dinosaurs in Montana. And so he basically took the character of me being this paleontologist in the book, Digging Dinosaurs, and made his Alan Grant character. And so what was that like for you to suddenly have your likeness and your image on a big screen and be this incredible blockbuster? (laughs) Well, in 1990... Steven Spielberg called and asked if I would, he said, you know, you're Alan Grant's based on you, and I want Sam Neill, who's going to play you, to meet you, and I would like you to work as our technical advisor. And so I agreed to do that, and, you know, that was fun. It was interesting to work on the movie. It was interesting to meet all those people. It was interesting to work with Steven Spielberg directly with him. But, you know, as I've told many people since, and certainly is true, I wouldn't trade my job as a paleontologist for anybody's job in the movie business. It is a fictional movie. You know, making a movie and digging up a Tyrannosaurus Rex, there's no comparison. I would always dig up the T-Rex. Paleontology is what I do, and I have continued to ask questions that people really didn't have answers for before, and As I always tell my students, you know, if you do it first, you don't have to read anything. So that's sort of how I I look at paleontology and science in general. There are a lot of questions out there, and there are a lot of things that nobody's ever thought of asking. So that's what I do. But I also train students. I became a professor, and I taught classes, and had graduate students, and grants. And, you know, I became, I guess, a regular academic kind of person wrote a lot of stuff, but I wouldn't do any of it if it weren't fun. 
I love that you taught a class called Thinking Outside the Box. <laughs> Tell me about that course. I think that's so apropos to who you are and everything you stand for. What is what is a course by Professor Jack Horner about? <laughs> well, first off, let me just say that Chapman University is a school that is really interested in attracting dyslexic students and helping to enhance their creative abilities. So this is the kind of school where someone like me would be found. Um, Thinking Outside of the Box is a class that I taught in an honors program in an attempt to teach honors students how to be good dyslexics, to use their dyslexic brain and think differently. And the whole notion was to get them to understand dyslexia. So that's what I did. I, I took a group of honor students and had them make a proposal that they would submit to the president of Chapman University on how to attract dyslexic students to Chapman University and keep them here long enough for them to graduate. Thank you for doing that for every kid who didn't even know there was a course like that that existed or a place like this that will embrace them. So for every parent and every teacher who has a son or daughter or a student who has dyslexia, how could they think outside the box? Dyslexic students already think outside the box. You know, the dyslexic brain is spatial. It thinks in a spatial way and not in a linear way. You know, we're tactical. We like to see things. We're very visual. And so from a linear thinker's perspective, dyslexics are always thinking outside the box. From our perspective, us spatial thinkers, you could say that we also think that you guys are thinking outside the box or you're inside the box. I don't know. We don't know. We don't really know where you are. But but we don't think like you do, and, and we don't want to think like you do. And that's one of the things that I try to instill in people who are trying to fix dyslexics. You know, the thing that a teacher should never do to any student under any circumstance is put them down because they're different. Don't try to fix them. It's not a problem. It's a gift. Oh, I love that you say that. I love that you're challenging the way I learn so that when I am surrounded by people who learn differently than me, that difference is okay. So specifically for teachers, what, what do you want them to know? I love that you said don't fix. Well, don't try uh, to fix them. No, absolutely not. And I've never heard that before. So I, I love that you said that so pointedly. Well, you know, we all need to learn to read to some degree. Obviously, we need to know where the exit sign is, right? I mean, there are things we need to know. And so, you know, there are different ways of learning to read that are fine for young kids especially but there's a whole bunch of people out there that think you know everyone should embrace reading and and i and lots of other people would say once you learn to read then just learn to do take your information and do something with it you know you don't have to read a book to go find a fossil i mean all you have to do is know how to do it so you find yourself a geological map that tells you where different ages rocks are. You figure out what kind of fossil you're interested in and look at the geological map. It'll tell you where different age rocks are, therefore what fossils you might find. And you just you know, drive there in your pickup truck and go look. Um, and I'd say that's, you know, for teachers, if you're dealing with kids with learning differences in K through 6, 
you, you want to do the best you can to teach them to read, but don't expect them to want to read because it's hard. We, we, it's, you know, reading is the hardest thing that I do in my life. It still is. It always will be. But I love doing things. I like creating things. I like building things. They're going to want to do things. They're going to be spatial. They're going to they're gonna just want to do things. And so as they get older, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, let them do things. Don't, don't push them into reading. So clearly one size does not fit all. Clearly there's different holistic ways to learn if your students are understanding. Of course. If you could give advice for the little Jack Horner out there who is listening to this podcast and feels encouraged and excited that someone like him or someone like her went on to do the things that you've done, travel the world, have incredible opportunities to work at some of the finest universities across the globe, to have characters written about you, to have movies made about you. What words of advice could you bestow upon them? Well, you got to try the best you can in school and understand that people really aren't going to understand you. But also, at the same time, follow your dreams. You know, if you want to make something, make something. If you want to go find something, go find something. Do the things that you're good at because you do think differently and people take notice that you think differently. So things work out in the end. I'm so grateful to Jack for his insight and inspiration. I hope you feel encouraged to think outside the box just like Jack. As an English teacher, I know that there are many learning challenges that affect students. As with dyslexia, I needed to educate myself about other learning challenges to better understand and educate students who may have suffered in silence or had an agonizing inability to focus, to read, or to write. One of my students, Ian Terrell, really struggled while he was in school and unfortunately was a target for bullying. In this heartfelt story, he talks about being diagnosed with a learning disability and what it felt like for him to be quote unquote different. He also shares how he found belonging and purpose within the walls of my classroom, room 203. Just as Jack overcame his challenges and became a published author, Ian went on to write about his experiences with ADD in the Freedom Writer's Diary. As you will hear him describe, Ian often speaks to classrooms across the globe through video chats. He addresses misconceptions about learning differences and provides encouragement for any kid who feels like they are alone. His message is clear. They are not alone, and they have so many gifts to offer the world. If you're a teacher, a principal, or a superintendent who wants to bring inspiration to your students, Freedom Writer video chats are an impactful way to do so. Send us an email using the link in the show notes. And we here at the Freedom Irish Foundation will take the time to learn about you and your students' needs. We will pair you with the perfect freedom runner like Ian, who can connect with your class and share personal experiences on various topics, such as dyslexia, ADD, or other learning differences. Again, the link is in the episode show notes, and we'll connect with you personally because the Freedom Riders and I are eager to serve. Now, here's Ian. I was a little hyper when I was a kid. Parents saw something out of the ordinary, and I was diagnosed at the age of eight with ADD at the Child Development Center in Irvine. 
attention deficit disorder. Yeah, lack of attention. I didn't really care about the name. I just knew that I have to be on medication three times a day. And there's other, obviously there are other ways to cope with learning disabilities, dyslexia, ADD. There's alternative methods. I had a lot of energy built up in me and no expressive ways. I mean, I wasn't a great drawer, I didn't sing, I didn't play sports all that well. So there had to be something, but I just didn't know what. But middle school, I had little challenges. There were some teachers, they say things like, why don't you be like the, all the other kids? Why do you have so much energy? But most of the time I kept to myself because if I say one weird thing, then all the students will think differently of me. In middle school, that's not a problem because I knew all my friends, but when I went to high school, I had no friends. All my friends went to the rival school. I had literally nobody. I didn't know Tony from Tony. I didn't know Maria from Maria. Henry, Sue Ellen, they were all just in there like me. Students just wanted to get a passing grade. So the first year, I kept quiet to myself. Ninth grade, didn't really say much. But there was a time I had prescription sunglasses and the sun was hitting, so it was all dark. And I walked in and I sat down. Miss G goes, oh, hey, look at you with the glasses. That's Top Gun with the glasses. And once I got Top Gun, I started thinking, hey, I have a, a nickname. Now I can be me. And then from then on, all the other Freedom Riders pretty had my back and I have theirs. That's when I knew I had backup. I knew that people cared for me. I had the twins and somebody was trying to say some awful things to me, but yet they didn't want to say it to my face. Shanine and Shanette went up to him and said, hey, if you want to talk about Ian behind his back, go ahead, say it to his face. What do you think he's going to do? Those are your true friends. That's who you can say like family. Today, through the Freedom Writers Foundation, I speak my story to thousands of teachers, students through video chats. I had a video chat with a teacher, her students, and that was that was surreal. Because it didn't not only dive into just ADD, there was depression and bullying and feeling of lack of self-trust and control. That was kind of eye-opening because Here's my story about ADD, and yeah, I can tell it a million times, but when kids open up, then you know that it's not just one, a thousand, there's tons and tons of thousands, millions of kids out there that feel different, whether they have ADD or not. But to hear me speak gives them hope, gives them life, and gives them a good feeling that, hey, we can battle this together. So it's not an army of one, it's an army of anyone. If you notice kids are looking down or they're drawing butterflies or they're staring out into space, take a little extra time, but don't make them feel like what they're doing is wrong. It's not a disability, it's a different ability. I want to thank Ian and Jack for generously sharing their stories and helping us reframe our understanding of learning differences. As we wrap up this episode, I'm humbled by the opportunity to have courageous conversations with unique voices like Jack. 
I was recently honored by the invitation from Chapman University's president, Daniele Strupa, to become a presidential fellow. I'll be joining such ranks as the legendary late Ellie Wiesel, our guest today, Jack Horner, and our past guest from episode number four, historian Andrew Carroll. I'm elated to contribute to Chapman's mission to nurture a community of inquiring, ethical, and productive global citizens. Thank you so much for listening to the Freedom Writers Podcast. I hope this discussion has provided you with inspiration and some strategies to make your classrooms, your homes, and your communities more inclusive and more accessible. Like Jack, may we too think outside the box and help all young people reach their fullest potential. Once again, I'm your host, Erin Gruwell. Our producer and editor is Bryce Sirier, and our associate producer is Rob Falk. Until next time, dear listeners, may you write what needs to be written and tell what needs to be told.